I want you to consider within our series description that Rome was the symbol of man's power in its day, and yet Romans is the timeless truth of God's grace to this day. An earthly empire can never overshadow or outlast the kingdom of God. Lori and I had the opportunity to visit Rome four years ago with a couple other uh, families within our church. What a privileged experience that was to walk in those places and to see those sites. So much history. And yet I was just overwhelmed with this overwhelming thought in my mind and yet so much of it in ruins. We essentially were walking amongst and celebrating the history that now only remains in ruins. It was amazing to think about all that took place at those sites in Rome, in Rome places that the, biblical, that the Bible has cited from biblical times. A, a truly, if I might use the word again, epic experience. But frankly, at the end of the day, the dominance of Rome clearly is a distant memory. You see, time marches on. And here's how I think I would summarize it. To visit Rome today is to recognize the power that once was. To read and study the book of Romans, however, is to recognize the power that still is. And so, we open the pages of this New Testament book to chapter 1, I invite you to do so, whether physically your Bible or a device that you have. No, not Facebook. Open your Bible, Scripture. Chapter 1, in verse 1, we read this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. Paul writes to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray today. Father, we thank you for the amazing message of your word, but more than simply words on a page or originally words on scrolls, they bring life for where the Spirit is at work. The Word of God is alive and active. And while Rome, in so many ways, we recognize is a distant memory, so much lying in ruins that the truth that is housed in Romans is truly the present reality of the grace of God. Holy Spirit, may you speak 
in our time today. May you speak throughout this series as we dive into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We do want to encourage you to be reading through Romans yourself over the coming months as we typically will say, especially when we're going through a book study, there's just so much for you to glean and so much to be gained. Only certain things, uh, and, and some might argue, you know, smaller portions of things that can really be brought out of the entire text. And what a great exercise and discipline to be reading the scriptures yourself, as should always be the case. And not just simply relying on the teaching in a small portion of your week to be the spiritual food that you receive for that given week. We need to be in the scriptures ourselves, and so we invite and encourage you to do so. Our plan, the plan, is essentially to cover a chapter each week in our teachings, or at least selections from a chapter each week, for there is so much that can be covered here, and I pray that we're enriched and we're challenged and we're transformed by the message that is housed in Romans. So let's dive into chapter one in our remaining time this morning. You know, clearly Romans has impacted many a great leader as well as everyday people. Some of those great leaders, Augustine, said that in Romans, he was quoted as saying, all the shadows of my doubt were dispelled through the book of Romans. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, called Romans the most important piece of the New Testament and said this, that it is impossible to read, study, ponder, and meditate on it too much. Martin Luther says, just is impossible to spend too much time in Romans. John Wesley, during a time of personal discouragement, went to a meeting where Martin Luther's preface on Romans was actually being read. And as that preface was being read, John Wesley recorded in his journal, he says that my heart was strangely warmed. He later wrote as well in his journal that he received in that and in the truth of Romans an assurance of salvation both through its message and even in the experience of that evening that subsequently led him to 40 plus years of very dynamic and very effective ministry and teaching. Friends, I cite some of those quote-unquote greats of faith and of history to say that we have the same opportunity to encounter Romans in a life-changing way. Here in Romans chapter 1, we're introduced to the writer. Of course, none other than the Apostle Paul, the one who penned much of what we know as the New Testament it's widely believed that Paul wrote this epistle. That's what his writings in the New Testament are referred to, in case you're wondering where'd that come from. The writing of this epistle of Romans, even though it's much longer than many of the other books that we see in the New Testament, it's believed that Paul, widely believed that Paul wrote this epistle while in the community of Corinth. For if you were to turn back to the pages of Acts in Acts chapter 20, you'll find reference to time that he spent in, in, in Corinth and some of the history that lines it up that historians and theologians believe clearly that he must have written in Corinth. 
Now Corinth, we must recognize as well, was the location of, again, what's widely believed to be Paul's greatest missionary success in Greece. This taking place during the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. We recognize Paul, the man, first and foremost, a former Pharisee, one who was trained by Gamaliel, these things referenced in others of Paul's writing, some in Philippians, some in others of the books of our New Testament. So we know as a former Pharisee, as Paul acknowledges in some of his letters alone, here in Paul was this religious zealot. He was a Pharisee, a religious zealot. You might even say that Paul, at least in his mind and his thinking in that time, that he was good at being good, at least according to man's standards. And yet I think we must acknowledge that empty religion, which was the very thing that Paul was practicing in that time as this zealot, religious zealot, this Pharisee, that empty religion can turn your heart bad. Even the best of intentions, if misdirected, which truly was the life of a religious zealot in Jesus' day, those who thought they were good at being good, those who Jesus referred to as the whitewashed tombs, you look all nice on the outside, but inside there's just death and decay. That we have in Paul this one whose empty religion at some point had turned him bad, but God plucked Saul from his sad existence and transformed his heart to that of the Apostle Paul. With that even came a name change, of course, right? From Saul to Paul. And in Paul, the man was truly a recipient of and an eyewitness to the transformative work of grace in an individual's life. Here at the start of Romans, we not only acknowledge Paul, the man, but we marvel at the message, a message that had been promised by the prophets well beforehand. This cited in Romans chapter 1 and verse 2, spoken and written by the prophets. These things promised well beforehand, hundreds of years before they were to unfold. This message of this Messiah that was to come and bring salvation to all mankind. An amazing message that through the Son of God, we can receive forgiveness and grace. And it was not only a saving gospel for the Jew, but then God decided to throw a curveball to mankind, right? In the mid midway through, we touched on it in the Courageous series a couple weeks ago when God seemingly just changed up the game plan and suddenly this gospel and this truth was now for the Gentile equally as it was for the Jew, what Paul reminds us in Romans is that all are loved by God, both Jew and Gentile, and understand some of the tension in the church of Rome that he was writing in the midst of as he was dealing both with the dynamic of Jew and Gentile within some of that audience. God fears as 
those Gentile believers were referred to. What some commentators believe might have been some of the very ones that Paul is writing here in Romans might have been some of the ones that were referenced at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when it says amongst other regions of those who heard the word of God, heard the gospel of Jesus in their own tongue were some who were from Rome who placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So we think about this amazing message and we think of now how God has chosen to open this envelope and some, I think, very much still trying to get their minds around, especially for the Jew, of course, but also for the Gentile that certainly we as well are now recipients of this wonderful message of forgiveness, this gospel of grace. We read of Paul longing to visit Rome. We understand from that statement alone that he's writing to believers in a place that he has never been. And yet, Paul the man and the message that he brings is also accompanied with this mission that he is to fulfill that is not simply one of obligation, Romans chapter 1 and verse 14, but it's one of eagerness, Romans chapter 1 and verse 15. Paul says, I am not just doing this out of obligation, but out of sheer, sheer eagerness to spread this news. This is what it is in verse 16. Really, we get the punchline right away of the whole book of Romans right here in chapter 1 and verse 16 when Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Giving his thesis statement right here in Romans chapter 1. And then continuing in that same text, we find these words. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteousness will live by faith. And so hence, our tagline for this series that we're embarking upon, the life of faith, the power of grace. This is the gospel. Gospel literally meaning good news. That gospel good news in the original language actually inferring the announcing of victory. The announcing of Victory. This good news of grace, Paul will remind us, cannot be earned, but rather it is a free gift from God. The central theological theme throughout the book of Romans, if you're into theological terms, would be stated as such that it is the justification by faith alone justification by faith alone. Some might ask the question, well, why do we really need the saving work and the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why is that saving work, why is that gospel of Jesus Christ so necessary? Well, I'm glad you asked the question because I've got an answer prepared for you. Because 
When left to our own devices, when left to our own decisions, functioning only in our human nature, apart from the eternal truth of God, we will oftentimes choose poorly for ourselves. We'll choose poorly for ourselves in our own devices, in our own decisions, when we function simply on our own human nature, apart from the eternal truth of God. And this latter part of Romans, in Romans 1.18 and following, makes that abundantly clear. Paul reminds us there in verse 20, that God has made himself plainly known. Listen to the text. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Friends, do you think we're prone to make excuses? <laughs> I know that I am. I'm sure all of us are. Well, God, you didn't make it abundantly clear. And yet Paul is stating the case that for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. When it comes to, as the scripture describes here, suppressing the truth, Pastor and author Timothy Keller plainly states it as this. He says, sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. Sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. In other words, we know the source that we're to go to, but we just choose not to go to that source. We choose not to live by that truth. And as a result, instead of centering our lives on the righteous exchange that Scripture describes, a righteous exchange of our sin and subsequent death for the grace of God which brings eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, instead of choosing that righteous exchange, we can easily settle for an ungodly exchange and frankly misplace our intended worship. We worship, as it says there in the scripture, we worship the created things rather than the creator himself. In saying that, Paul is first and foremost referencing that in that day the prevalence of the worshiping of false gods. One of the distinguishing parts of this Christian thought, of Protestant thought here, was the monotheistic belief, while so many were going after a polytheistic belief, they were just making up all kinds of gods to who knows where and when, with no real legitimacy, and, and even in many of those gods, as we know from other parts of Scripture, that, that they took a real evilness to them, they took sensual kind of uh, characteristics, and all kinds of stuff was wrapped up in this. They worshipped the created things rather than the creator himself. And so we look at that example, right, and we go, Whew, sure glad I don't have any false gods. 
Sure glad I'm not making any false idols out of thing, right? And, and we have to stop ourselves really quick because all of us have a tendency to set up gods in our lives above the true God himself and we misplace our worship. We're worshiping the wrong things. Paul puts it this way in verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Consider this, because if you have your scriptures open, you see that the second half of Romans 1, at least I believe in my Bible, it just talks about the wrath of God. You know, some of us read through the first half of Romans, we're thinking, oop, time to go to chapter 2, right? Some heavy stuff that's, that's mentioned there in the second part of this first chapter of Romans. But I want us to consider that when it comes to the wrath of God, maybe to suggest this thought as well, sometimes the wrath of God is expressed in giving you exactly what you want. Maybe you're requesting things, you're desiring things that are not God's desire, God's, not God's intent for you, but you seem so insistent that you want those things. That could it be that sometimes the wrath of God is expressed even in giving you exactly what you want. And when I say the things you want that wouldn't line up with the things of God's truth and who he is and what his character is. I'm not suggesting for a moment that anything you just kind of happen to want if God gives it to you it's like well there's wrath. I'm not saying that at all. But could it be that sometimes in those wants and those desires that venture far from the will of God for your life, that the wrath of God can be expressed in sometimes giving you exactly what you have asked for? When you're only driven by your wants, then so often wickedness and evil and greed and depravity, and you can see what is mentioned there in, in Romans 1, can rule the day. Friends, what I would suggest to you is that what God wants most is to give you what you need. It's to give you what you need. And what each of us so desperately needs is the mercy and the grace of his son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, gives us the saving grace that every one of us needs most. It may not, see what, it may not be what we recognize, in our human thinking, in our sinful and human nature, if you will. It may not be the thing that we readily think that we want, but God created you. God knows what you need even before you ask. And what God wants most is to give you what you need, the needed mercy and grace of his son, Jesus Christ, this saving grace that every one of us needs most. Paul's underlying message here in the latter part of Romans chapter 1 
Well, I think it's simply this. Don't exchange any, what I would put air quotes over, thing. Don't exchange anything or misplaced emotion or desire. Don't exchange any of those things for the glory of God that is to be within you. Don't exchange any of those things. Choose a righteous exchange, which is exchanging your sin and the subsequent death for the grace of God, which brings eternal life. Don't settle for an ungodly exchange and thus misplace your worship when your worship is only intended for one, and that is the one true God. Don't exchange anything not a misplaced emotion or desire, just simply ruled by your wants or the things that you think that you want and you need to pass up on the thing that you really need, the saving grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've heard it said that we know the power of God from creation, just like what we've read here in Romans 1, but we only know the love of God from the cross. Hear that again. We know the power of God from creation and certainly from other things as well, but we only know the love of God from the actions of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for each of us. Consider what Paul writes later in Romans 5, 8 when he says, but God demonstrates his own love to us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I've heard this said before in a paraphrase, that while we were at our worst, God gave his best. While we were maybe left wanting on any number of fronts, God gave us most what we needed. This morning, and I want to invite the team if they'll come back out, we are going to conclude our message time in the receiving of communion. And we welcome any and all and we alert now those at home as well to make sure that you have something representing the, the bread and the juice today. That we welcome all to receive at this table, if you will, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the very reason that we do this symbolic act is because Jesus says, take this bread which represents my body. Take this, this, this juice or this cup that represents my blood and do this in remembrance of my sacrifice for you. Friends, God loves you so much that he placed your sin upon his son, Jesus, so that you might have the opportunity to experience redemption and salvation. I want to pray over us before we take communion. We'll receive it together, and then we're going to share in a time of response. And allow God to speak through you in this time. You know, Scripture reminds us that if we have, if there's anything that's not right within us or even against someone else, might we reconcile it before God? 
so that in our conscience and in our own standing so that we're clear before God today. But you know, in saying that, the reality is is that all of us are imperfect people, right? And so we're going to be prone to sin, but thank God we have a way in which to receive life. And it's through the work that Jesus has done, symbolized by this very act that we will do here in a few moments. I'm going to ask if you bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we, we thank you again for Jesus' atoning sacrifice for our sin. We thank you that it's because of this action, his death and his resurrection, that brings redemption and salvation that we can truly have life and have life eternal. Jesus, as we take this symbolizing your, your body and as we take this symbolizing your blood, may we do this in remembrance of you. And so with that, you can take that wafer and let's take it together, the body of Christ. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup and he passed it among them, said, this is the blood of my new covenant. Let's take this together. Let us celebrate a God who redeems, a God who restores us, one who invites us to build our lives upon him as our firm foundation.